It's All Journalism has always been a labor of love for its producers. We do the interviews, edit the audio, and present weekly podcasts to you free of charge. While we did launch a Patreon page a few years back to great fanfare and little success, we haven't really asked our listeners for financial support. That may change at some point, but for now, we'd like you to continue enjoying our content for free. While we're not asking for your dollars, we would like to ask you to do a few simple things to help our podcast grow. First, subscribe to It's All Journalism on your favorite audio platform. Then, go to itsalljournalism.com and sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Like and share our episodes on social media. Rate and like our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to It's All Journalism. Tell a friend or colleague about It's All Journalism. You can also take one of our anonymous online surveys. These simple actions from our loyal audience can have a huge impact on our podcast's success. You can find out more about our podcast at itsalljournalism.com. These are issues where we have an increasing body of evidence in support of a prevailing consensus or understanding and yet there's still an increasing number of people who believe the opposite. Journalists deal in the truth. Assembling and disseminating facts is our job. But what happens when people stop believing in facts and sources actively spread disinformation? I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Jennifer Cavanaugh is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and director of the Royo Center's Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program. With Michael D. Rich, she wrote the recent report, Truth Decay, an initial exploration of the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. So first of all, can you describe what you set out to do with this report? Sure. Truth decay is the term that we're using to refer to the diminishing role that facts, data, and analysis play in political and civil discourse and in our policymaking process. And what we wanted to do with this report was to define what this means, what we think is causing it, to talk about the consequences, and then to think about what we still don't know and lay out a research agenda for studying it. So it was really a framework setting piece, an agenda setting piece that allowed us then to launch into a research agenda and a set of projects, a portfolio of work that we're continuing today to understand and address the phenomena. Okay, so what was it that sort of precipitated this research effort? Truth Decay is something that Michael has been interested in, my co-author has been interested in for about a decade now. It's something that he observed and he became concerned about first from Rand's perspective. If Rand is a research organization whose mission is to provide policy-relevant research that's based on facts and evidence to policymakers to inform their decisions, then if facts no longer matter anymore and if data is pushed aside, where does that leave RAND as an organization? So the starting point was this question of what does this mean for RAND as an institution? But as the problem became increasingly severe and increasingly noticeable, it became obvious that this phenomenon didn't just have implications for RAND, but really implications for our entire society and for our democratic institutions. And so at that point, Michael really felt that it was important for RAND to take on this question. RAND is uniquely positioned between the uh, academic world and the policy world to take on a question like this in a really interdisciplinary and holistic way. And so that's what we set out to do, was to leverage the comparative advantage that we have in that space to tackle this complex and challenging question. And the reason I wanted to have you on this podcast, I mean, we're a journalism podcast, 
And, you know, the basis of our industry is is reporting on facts. And we have kind of a unique role in our Constitution about what our role is in society. And part of that is, you know, to help our democracy function correctly, we report the news unfettered. We report the truth. And, you know, our industry has been sort of dealing with this question of fake news more recently you know, since the 2016 election. But if you start looking at this problem, this is a problem that's been around for, for a while, a few decades. You know, it, it is problematic because our whole society, our whole government came out of the age of reason. It was built on this idea that different parties could agree on things that were true. They could make agreements and then, you know, work out solutions so that they could function together. We can't even agree on the facts then that's that's kind of a problem for for the functioning of our society. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one thing that we make clear in the book is that if policymakers can't agree on the facts, if they don't have a common set of facts as a starting point, then they can't actually have a meaningful policy debate. They can't actually debate what are the right policy options or how should we set national priorities and how do we allocate scarce resources. Instead, the whole conversation is centered around what are the facts that we're even talking about? What is even the state of play or the, the playing field? What does that look like? Yeah. Tell me a little bit how you did your, your research for this. So we combined a number of different methods. We started out by just talking to people at RAND and experts outside of RAND in all sorts of fields, education, journalism, politics, and trying to get a sense of what they thought they were seeing. Because we wanted to understand what is this phenomenon that we're all feeling, that we're all observing, we're all calling it different things, whether it's post-truth or something else. What is it and can we describe it? And we used that then to set up a framework or a set of hypotheses that we then explored using extensive literature reviews to basically collect everything that we knew from past work on things like political polarization, social polarization, cognitive biases, how we educate students to use information. And then, of course, most relevant to this podcast, everything that has to do with the media space, how it's changing, how dissemination of information is changing, social media, disinformation. What do we know about these things and where are the gaps? We also did some historical analysis to try to identify analogous periods. Has this ever happened before or is it something totally new? That was the question for that piece of the research. And then we looked at data sets, public opinion data, and other types of data to just get a real, a clear perspective or view on what do we actually know about this and what don't we know. And that then set us up to identify the gaps that we wanted to address with our continuing research. And the research that we're doing now on this topic is different in the sense that we're less focused on surveying what's been done and more focused on filling those gaps by collecting and studying empirical data, whether it's survey data or other types of data. How would you just define truth decay? What is this? What is it we're kind of seeing here? Well, we define truth decay as comprising four specific trends. The first is an increasing disagreement about facts and data. Examples would be disagreements about the safety of vaccines, disagreements about the safety of GMOs or about climate change. These are issues where we have an increasing body of evidence in support of a prevailing consensus or understanding. And yet there's still an increasing number of people who believe the opposite. So if you take the example of vaccines, vaccine skepticism isn't new. There have been vaccine skeptics since vaccines were invented. But what we see now is that as we get more and more evidence that they're safe, more and more people are saying that they're not. So it's that divergence between data and attitudes that we point to in this first trend. 
The second and third trend go together. There's the blurring of the line between fact and opinion, and an increasing volume of opinion compared to fact. And that increasing volume then gives that opinion more influence. And examples of this would be basically anytime you look on social media or turn on cable news, places where you see fact and opinion mixed in ways where it's difficult to tell which is which, and where the amount of opinion and commentary is simply overwhelming. So that even when you want to find the facts, it can be hard. And then the final trend is declining trust in key institutions that we used to look to as sources of factual information. And that would include especially media, government, places we used to look to as authoritative, where distrust is so high at this point that people no longer feel they can turn to those sources. So we end up with a situation in which people not only aren't sure what's true and what's not, but they don't know where to turn. You know, I mentioned the, the 2016 election, but this is something that's been going on for a while. In your research and you're looking back, were you able to sort of, maybe not an origin point, but, you know, lines of progression of things happening over a period of time? Did you get a sense of what was causing this and how this is sort of developed? Well, in terms of a starting point, you're right that it's very hard to pinpoint a specific date. We don't think it's driven by one specific event or one specific person or one specific administration. It really does go back decades. And we look to something like around the year 2000, but that's not precise. It's around the early 2000s that you start to see a lot of these trends that I just described. In terms of what we think is causing it, again, we identified a number of different causes. The first was just cognitive bias, the way we process information as humans makes us very susceptible to believing false things and falling prey to disinformation. And once we believe that, we tend to cling on to it. And we tend to look for information that will prove that we're right. And second, of course, is changes in the media landscape. And that would include everything from the rise and spread of social media to the diversity of different sources, which means that anybody can find pretty much any source and find sources that agree with them at almost any point, regardless of what they believe we see increasing democratization of news, meaning that anybody can access information, anybody can produce information. And that is a good thing, but it also brings with it this challenge of figuring out what's high quality information and what's not. And then there's the whole economic side of the changes in the media landscape in terms of the economic incentives and the funding and the pressure on the bottom line, driven by a lot of these other changes. Yeah, that's a lot of things that we've talked about it in various incarnations on this podcast. You know, corporate entities buying up papers, small community papers disappearing, you know, massive layoffs of reporters. And but then on the other side, you know, one of the things that we kind of championed was as sort of the rise of the Internet. This is a thing where everybody has their voice. These new news systems, it's not about broadcasting at people anymore. It's being involved in a conversation with people. And so it's almost a diminishing of those roles as truth tellers or authorities. Right. If, well, there's no, there's no gatekeeper. Right, um, exactly there's no right. one person who's deciding what the narrative is. And actually, I mean, you see that in the report that we just published this week. You know, we found that when we asked people, what do you think? Is news more reliable today or less reliable than it used to be? We found that a lot of the groups, like minorities and women, people who typically were not, were not in those gatekeeper roles, they actually are more likely to say that they think the news is more reliable now than people who traditionally, you know, men who may have more traditionally been in these roles are more likely to say it's less reliable. And one possible explanation for that is that groups that didn't used to have a voice now do. And that factors into their assessment and their overall satisfaction with the way the media environment works. 
So certainly there are good parts to having a more diverse and democratized information system. But of course, it does bring this challenge then of, of having fewer markers that help people looking for signals of quality or signals of accuracy. That's interesting because some of the conversations we've had about trust in media are things like transparency, you know, news organizations showing their steps, the way they report and cover the news, and then also a diversity, the, this sort of goal that we need to have more diverse newsrooms so that people who are looking at the, at the newsroom see people that reflect who they are, maybe not necessarily their values, but their life experience. The problem is all this is going on at the same time. Nothing's really going on in order, in an orderly way. And so that sort of creates this overall confusion. It's messy. Yeah, there's lots of good things about our new media environment. And there's lots of things that are challenging. And I think that one of the lessons from history is that a lot of times we see these periods where there is this blurring of the line between fact and opinion, where disinformation seems to spread more quickly. A lot of these periods are also periods where new technology has been introduced and that technology isn't fully integrated yet, that people are still figuring out how they want that technology to be a part of their lives. And so I think that understanding the phenomenon of truth decay and the reasons why both it's so prevalent and also why it seems so intractable is just understanding that this is like still everything is still changing and we're still getting used to having it. And in that period, it's naturally messy as we figure out how we want this system to operate and which characteristics we want to keep and which characteristics we'd rather get rid of. Yeah, it's interesting. You can look at, you know, the way that social media and people's perception of it in the last 10 or 15 years, maybe early on, people are like willing to share all types of information. And when they began to see that they're, well, maybe that's not the best way for me to use social media, maybe from a a privacy and a safety standpoint, maybe I need to be smarter about that. It's a matter of learning, you know, these things are occurring (laughs) without a real set of instructions or or best practices. And we're we're kind of hammering out these best practices as we're we're going along. One of the things that you sort of mentioned there in your, your research is you say you looked back at other periods and you alluded to just now to the introduction of new technology, creating situations like this. What other periods can you sort of point to either in U.S. history or, or world history where things like this have happened? Yeah, so we focused on U.S. history specifically and actually a pretty specific period of U.S. history of U.S. history since the Civil War. And even in that period, we were able to find a number of examples. The first being the rise of mass-produced newspapers in the 1890s. And you saw, you know, yellow journalism, which was, again, sensationalized news put in papers to sell more papers, which is one of the driving motivations here for sensationalized or false or misleading information here is obviously to attract viewers or to appeal to a specific set of readers or consumers. So you have that example. A second example would be the 1920s to 1930s. And so there in the 20s, you have a very strong tabloid journalism industry. And then also in the 30s, the rise of radio. And when radio first came into being, it was heavily dominated by powerful hosts who used that platform to spread their opinions. And that should sound really familiar to anybody who's studied or thought about cable news. So again, we have this analog of this new medium that spreads information in a new way, and which initially was a platform for the spread of false information or misleading information. And then in the 60s and 70s, the late 60s, early 70s, when television was really, you know, that's really when we hit a point of saturation where pretty much everyone had a television. 
And again, there was a lot of debates and disagreement about, you know, what does television mean for news? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Concern about manipulation of video and the ways in which politicians and other actors use that medium to influence opinions. So we had a lot of the same debates. You can go back and read papers that were or speeches that were given by powerful people in the media industry in the 60s about the rise of television. And it sounds exactly like things people are saying now about the integration of social media. So you see a lot of these patterns reoccurring and reemerging. This period does seem different in some ways. And that's specifically this disagreement about facts and data. We don't see that in these other periods. We see a lot of the, the information characteristics of truth decay, but not that one which makes this period different. And, and so we're trying to understand what that means. Did you come to any sort of conclusion or, or idea about what may be leading to that? Well, I think part of it may be the nature of this change in the information system. You know, I think social media is distinct and we can point to other changes in technology, but in terms of the scale and scope of the changes that the internet has brought to the way we consume and share information, I think really you have to go back to the printing press if you want to think about something that's been as revolutionary. And so that brings with it a unique set of characteristics. I think because the internet allows us and the diversity of sources that we have available allows us to search and confirm basically any belief we have, I think that really does give sway and power to a lot of the conspiracy theories that before might have been washed out. And then the second factor I point to would be the polarization, both political but also social and economic, and the extent to which we live in really small, homogenized communities that are very much like us. You know, we live with people who, or near people, who share a religious belief, social activities, economic status, recreational preferences often. And in that context, it's very easy for alternative narratives to emerge and really thrive because they're not being challenged or even facing other views. And so I think that those two things together make this divergence between opinions and facts or sustain it, encourage it, and really give it space to thrive. So do news consumers believe that, that the reliability of news has changed? And which news platforms do they believe to be more or less reliable? Well, so our survey suggested that about a little bit less than half of the people we surveyed believe that the reliability has stayed the same. The, number, the exact number is 44%. But almost an equal number, 41%, felt that news was less reliable than it had previously been previously. And only 15% said that it was more reliable. But as I referenced previously, a good amount of diversity in terms of responses by demographic characteristics as well as partisanship. So as I mentioned previously, men are less likely to say that news has become more reliable, they're much more likely to say that it's less reliable. Whereas minorities and women are more likely to say that news has become more reliable. We talked a little bit about some of the reasons why that might be. So that's just one example of some of these different demographic characteristics and how that might affect. Another would be education. People with college degrees are less likely to think that it's more reliable. So they tend to believe that reliability is decreased. Whereas people with less education had a somewhat different view. So we tried to understand these demographic characteristics because looking at everything aggregated hides a lot of these more interesting patterns. So is there a sense that, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the rise of the internet, the rise of social media. 
Is there a sense from the news consumer's perspective if any platform – are they giving their trust to any particular platform over the other? And if so, what is it, I guess? Yeah. So well, we asked about reliability versus trust, but the most reliable in our survey were broadcasting cable television followed by print journalism and then online journalism, as I, which I would distinguish from social media. So not social media, but online it could include anything from like the New York Times online to something like Politico or something that only has a online presence and no print version. So those were the top four in our survey. So broadcast news as opposed to cable news or does it? Yeah. So broadcast news was first followed by cable news. Those two are pretty close. Print journalism also pretty close. And then that's followed by online journalism. It's interesting because online journalism is the one that follows, but you have you know, broadcast cable and print, which were the previous go-to factors. I mean, those sure. not have, not have changed, right? It wouldn't they be haven't changed. suddenly like, oh my gosh, we're getting all of our news from online and that somehow supplanted it. They're still relevant in this conversation, at least from a consumer standpoint. Yeah, I mean, there, there are other platforms that show the number of people who consume at least some of their news on social media, and that's pretty high at this point. I think most people get at least some news from social media, and a lot of people rely on mobile technologies and online. But when you ask about reliability and trust, you tend to see that some of the more traditional outlets, things like print journalism, either at the national level, even local papers, broadcast TV, these are the ones that are most reliable. Social media, much lower on our scale both in terms of when we asked explicitly about trust and when we asked about reliability, social media is much lower. Now, that doesn't always mean, as we find in our survey, that people actually turn to the sources that they believe are most reliable. In fact, in our survey, we found that almost one third of people recognized that the new source they were using was not a reliable one. They rated it as one that was not reliable or less reliable than others. And yet it was the one that they relied on most. So while two thirds of consumers seem to factor in reliability when choosing their news sources, the other third are choosing on sources that they themselves report to be less reliable. So why do you think that is? Did you get any indication of that? <laughs> it seems, seems counterintuitive. It is really counterintuitive. We spent a lot of time thinking about why and trying to draw from other types of literatures to understand why that might be. And, you know, one factor that's probably relevant here, and we see that in some of the other analyses that we do, is that decisions about how you consume news are really habits or lifestyle choices. They're not just about getting information. So you may make decisions about how you choose news based on what fits most easily into your day or the time you have or what's most convenient. And that may not be a source that is most reliable. And so you may recognize that you're not choosing the most reliable source, but it's the one that's easiest for you or the one that you enjoy the most, and you prioritize those things first. Changing people's information consumption habits isn't just about telling them, well, that's not as reliable as this source. It's about actually integrating that more reliable news into the format that they can fit into their typical news consumption habits or their lifestyle. Okay. Convenience seems to be leading a lot of this. Now, are you drawing a distinction between the native platforms of broadcast and print compared to their their digital presence, or is it all sort of – are those combined? Like no, a, those are like separate. A, so, you know, the fact is that the Washington Post and New York Times, they have pretty robust online presence. 
But yet, maybe in what you're say, sort of saying, that even though people may or may not trust them more, let's say they trust them more, they may not integrate them into part of their consumption for whatever particular reason. I think the groups of people that we find that are most likely to be using sources that they know are not reliable are those people who are relying on social media. So they recognize that social media is not a reliable source, and yet they rely on it anyway. The people who are relying on online information, the people who are choosing print and broadcast, they're typically people who report that they are using sources that are ones that they rank as being more reliable. So I think it's less the distinction between the online presence and the original or native presence in terms of the reliability. It's more about these other platforms and maybe they're relying on in-person sources. You know, so it's more about, about that social media aspect, I think. There's a quote that I pulled out from your report that I kind of wanted to sort of ask you to elaborate on. And it's skepticism about the reliability of the news does not necessarily increase an individual's likelihood of turning to news platforms they deem to be more reliable. In fact, we see the opposite. I guess this is really kind of what we're talking about here. It's convenience, I guess. It's also, even though they recognize it's something that that may not be as reliable, it's it's something they, they go to. When I read that, I started thinking about things like, you used to like would ask somebody in a survey, well, do you read books? You know, and they say, yeah, oh yeah, I love reading books. And you find out that they actually don't read any books, but they say they read books because, because it makes them look smarter or they want to, they want to be perceived of as somebody who, who reads books, but they don't necessarily make time for it in their day. I just find it fascinating that there's this kind of disconnect between recognizing that something's not reliable and yet that's kind of where they turn to get their news or they're allowing that, that news to be delivered to them that way, even though they, they recognize that it may not be a reliable source. You know, one hypothesis we have is this lifestyle hypothesis about time and convenience. Two other more negative hypotheses. One would be that they are disaffected. You know, they, they just don't really care about news in general. So it's not important to them whether or not it's a reliable source. And another, which is related, would be that they just don't actually care if it's accurate or not. Like facts aren't important to them. And that goes back to the whole idea of, of truth decay, which is that at its core, truth decay is a rejection or a sense that facts aren't as important. Facts and evidence aren't necessary to make decisions or to discuss policy in the case if we're talking about policymakers. So, you know, that's kind of a more pessimistic view and a more troubling one. But our analysis doesn't allow us to affirmatively say whether it's one or the other or neither or both. Do you feel that the news consumer is any more educated than they were before? Or do you have any indication of that? We didn't look over time to see whether news consumers have become more educated. I mean, I think in general, as a population, education levels are going up in the United States, at least. I'm not sure about about other countries, but... I don't think that necessarily translates into education to navigate the current information environment. In fact, surveys suggest that people with higher levels of education are actually more likely to cling to false beliefs and to refuse to update their beliefs when presented with disconfirming evidence. So education isn't a cure-all. It doesn't help us to avoid our cognitive biases. It doesn't help us to know how to navigate the really complex media landscape and information environment that we're faced with. And that is a, a really important point to remember. Us, another related point is that this skill that we need to navigate the current information environment, those are skills that adults may not have because they weren't taught them. So internet didn't exist. And schools are still struggling to figure out how to provide. 
technology changes quickly, institutions change slowly, especially schools which have lots of parochial interests. And so that's another factor that's coming in here is this fact that we're all pretty susceptible to a lot of the things that social media brings with it, especially the disinformation. Yeah, I mean, you can look throughout our history. People have always been susceptible to scams and being duped. But you also kind of, I think, were sort of alluding to there was a study that came out recently where they were ta- they were sort of talking about this phenomenon of if you present somebody who believes one thing with evidence to the contrary that they will dig in deeper on their beliefs and that's just part of the human way it deals with these things and so i see that a lot of what we're running into is it's not only that recognizing that we can't agree on the facts but we can't be open to facts There's a lot of conflicting evidence about the extent to which people do or do not cling more firmly to those beliefs when they're challenged. It certainly is true that it's hard to change someone's mind, even with disconfirming evidence. So certainly that is, it's a real challenge that even when we have evidence, it's hard. And this goes back to the whole storytelling idea. We are easily persuaded by stories that that are filled with emotion and anecdotes that we can relate to facts and data don't always have the same emotional weight. And so one of the questions that we ask at Rand as researchers is how do we give our our data and evidence the same emotional weight to make them as compelling and convincing? But that's really, that's really hard. And that's funny because that's really one of the things that journalists have learned that we sometimes forget. I think we're kind of wrapped up in this idea of pursuing the truth right now and pushing out the facts and running fact checkers on things. But forgetting that, you know, a lot of the core of what we do and what we've learned is that in order to get change, in order to reach people, to get your readers to react to what you're writing, you have to give them a story. You have to have something that they can identify with. That is facts aren't alone to change people's minds. You have to have that story, which I think is what you just said. So what lessons can journalists draw from your report and how they can sort of improve their relationship with with the news consumer, I guess? That's what we really need to do. Yeah, so I think I would point to three things. I mean, the first is just the observation, which isn't a new one, which other studies have certainly demonstrated, is this general perception of you know, relatively low and declining declining reliability, that people still feel distrust towards media institutions, and they're kind of struggling to relate. So that like relation gap and then the need to provide information to consumers and reach out in ways that they can relate to, as you said, even when they're just telling factual stories and trying to get the story out. Second, I think, is this observation that we discussed about news choices being part of a lifestyle or being part of a habit, that people consume news when it fits in their lives. And if that means kind of bite-sized chunks, that's how they do it, even if that's not the most reliable sources and even if they recognize that. And so thinking about how do we provide high-quality information in a format that gets to them, that allows them to integrate that information into their lives to build their habits or to keep their current habits, but to get better information, thinking about the ways that we present and package information, not just not just word choice, but how it's packaged and presented. And then the final would be thinking about labeling. You mentioned this, like provide context for readers. What's a fact? What's an opinion? What's a question fact? Or what's a complete falsehood that a reporter feels that they need to include to keep the story complete, but is actually false, and we want to flag that for readers? Providing them those kinds of cues may be one way to increase reliability and to rebuild trust and to help consumers navigate what is still a very complex and changing media environment. 
so I guess I understand that this this is really kind of the first of a series of reports you're going to be doing on this subject. What other areas are you going to be kind of looking into? This is our third report. The one that came out this week is our third report in this series. The first looked at changes in the way news is presented. So we used lexical analysis to understand how the tone and style of news has changed over time in newspapers, over time in broadcast television. And then we looked across platforms from print to online journalism, from broadcast to cable. And what we were really interested in there was trying to measure the changes that have occurred in the way news is reported or presented. And what we find isn't surprising. It's the ability to measure it that's interesting, which is this increase in subjectivity and personal perspective and argumentation and emotion. We see it most, however, not in over time. So not changes over time as much as changes between old media and new media. So print and social media. So really they are fundamental, fundamentally different types of news. So that was the first report. The second one looked at media literacy, trying to understand how media literacy could be used as a response to some of these trends that we have seen, how it can be used and leveraged to build resilience to disinformation and help people to navigate the information space. This is our third. We've also released a database of tools that can be used to detect, track, and otherwise explore disinformation online, as well as credibility scoring tools that allow that provide information on the accuracy and quality of sources, a whole range of different tools created by civil society organizations that information consumers or researchers can use to better understand or protect themselves against disinformation. And then one that we're hoping will be our next one in early 2020 is a study looking at trust in institutions. We look specifically at governments, media organizations, and the military to try to understand not just levels of trust and distrust, but also what drives trust. Is it people in the institution? Is it the processes? Is it the output? Um, and how does that vary across demographics? So that's the next one that will come out. We have a study on cognitive bias. We have a study on civic literacy. We're thinking about social media and what that might look like in the future. Is there a better alternative to what we, than what we have now that, that captures those good things but gets rid of the bad things, as we talked about earlier? And then we're expanding globally, trying to think about what is this phenomenon in Europe? Is it the same? Is it different? And in what ways? So those are some of the projects that we have going on now. And we're hoping to you know, continue to expand the portfolio and tackle more and more pieces, both specifically on journalism, but then also on these other pieces of the challenge. Well, I haven't read the other two reports. I'm going to go back and do that. I have, did read this report and found it incredibly fascinating and really sort of insightful. It sort of informs a lot of the discussion that we've had on this podcast about trust in media, about eroding truth. Really, really fascinating. And when these conversations come up, you sort of get this feeling of like doom and gloom. But I, but I take a lot of I take a lot of hope out of the facts that you're putting out there. I mean, these are dire and important things that we need to be paying attention to. But on the other hand, this is something that, that's occurred before in a slightly different way or maybe even a very different way. So I, I take some positiveness out of that. And the fact that Rand has, has put its focus on this, I think this is a really good thing. I would highly recommend that, that people check this out. I'm going to include the links with the report. Jennifer, thank you for coming on the podcast. I learned a lot and talking to you, but also reading this report. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed talking about the work with you. 
You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. And if you hurry, there's still time to score your own It's All Journalism coffee mug by taking one of our anonymous online surveys. Go to itsalljournalism.com to learn more. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emil Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.